Rewind, your year in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. 2021 sure has been a year to remember. There are far too many people who don't know how to get a vaccination. The Delta variant is here in Wisconsin. Our seven-day average is 100% higher. This week, we count down some of the biggest political stories of the year. Today, we anticipate having a $2.39 billion general fund surplus as we start the new fiscal year. I am running for governor of the great state of Wisconsin. And we'll look ahead to what we can expect for the upcoming 2022 midterm elections. All this and more on our Year in Review special. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Welcome to our Rewind 2021 Year in Review special. We are going to count down, of course, some of the biggest political stories of the year. So let's first start from 10, J.R. Number 10, drumroll please is workforce woes. Now, there's been a lot of developments with the Department of Workforce Development throughout the year. Some of the big highlights, let's start with August, is when Wisconsin's unemployment claim backlog was eliminated. But the holdup there is that hundreds of people are still stuck in a backlog of appeals waiting for a hearing. In September, the workforce development hired an IT company to overhaul the system to revamp how the unemployment claims were processed after the pandemic really exasperated the current system. We also saw federal unemployment uh, benefits were eliminated and work search requirements reinstated. But with all of this, we still have this huge workforce shortage. Republicans are blaming, you know, the federal unemployment claims. They have issued several proposals uh, throughout this year trying to help the struggling workforce, employers who are looking to hire people and qualify people as well. So I guess my real question is right now, we know the unemployment system and it failing during the pandemic was uh, going to be a key problem for Evers and his reelection campaign. Do you still think come November of next year, that's still going to be a top issue and a top target for Republicans when he's on the campaign trail? Well, the ads write themselves. So you're going to have people who spent months trying to get their claims filled, talking about what happened to their lives and how it impacted them financially. The bright spot for Tony Evers is just this month, we had record low unemployment. The November rate hit 3%, tied the lowest level we've had on record in Wisconsin. So Evers is going to make the argument, I'm sure, that, look, we went through this problem. It was an outdated system. They screwed up before. It should have been fixed before we even got in office. We fixed this system. And because we took these various steps on employment, we're down, down to a record low. What I don't know is how that play in their ads to talk about employment versus those sob stories you're going to hear in the Republican ads. It's still an issue for Evers. One of the biggest liabilities he has is going to be unemployment and the, the backlog of claims. Um, and they do enough. They try to get uh, general purpose revenue funding for this overhaul of the system. Republicans kind of went back and forth with me, finally went to federal money. Republicans said, why didn't you do this earlier? You had the money available. Why didn't you do this earlier? Uh, and the governor, it's, it's been a constant conflict with the Republicans of, he sees as we have all the state money at our disposal. We have a surplus. Let's use it. Republicans keep saying, no, use the federal money while you can to hoard that state money. But yeah, it, it's still going to be an issue next year. Republicans will make it an issue. But just like in 2018, I did not foresee that 
the lawsuit over Obamacare would be a defining issue the 2018 election right. in January of that year. I don't know what's going to be the defining issue come next fall because it's such a long way away in politics. It's a lifetime. And some of the messaging we might see is that Governor Evers recently also used some of that federal money, about $60 million for projects to kind of ease the workforce struggles. We've seen Republicans introduce legislation to give unemployment benefits to those who are fired due to vaccine requirements. Uh, so we could, pr- or also there was also another bill that would allow 14-year-olds mm-hmm. to work longer hours in the summer. So we'll see Republicans kind of focusing on this. This is what we we want Governor Evers either didn't sign those or he pushed those aside. And Evers saying, "Look, I used a lot of chunk of change of the federal uh, ARPA funding to try to ease some of this workforce struggles." But I think going into next year, we're still going to see a lot of help wanted signs. Mm-hmm. I know I'm sure me and you have gone out to eat or you know going out and about long lines have to wait much longer times because people just can't hire people. And a warning sign long term, not to be a Debbie down here, but <laughs> we got new numbers from the Census Bureau about growth in the states between. Uh, July 1st of 20 and July 1st of 2021, Wisconsin's growth rate was less than 0.1%. It was number 28th in the country for growth. It's not great. Long, long term, we have the work shortage issue. That's going to be a problem. But a decade from now, when they do another census and try to figure out who's got seats and who doesn't, we could be on the verge of losing a seat in 10 years unless that trend picks up. We have better growth in Wisconsin or more immigration in. All right, we are now going to move to topic number nine. We have uh, Mayor Tom Barrett, I guess, packs his bags for mayor, <laughs> and he will be heading to Luxembourg. It was December 16th that the U.S. Senate confirmed Tom Barrett to serve as ambassador. This sets up a new era in the city of Milwaukee to serve after his nearly two decades in Milwaukee. Now, as of December 22nd, Barrett was officially formalized, or he officially formalized a transition of authority to now acting Mayor Cavalier Johnson. Now, currently there are eight candidates seeking to become the next mayor. And the key is here that this is a much shorter timeline, JR, that candidates have to prepare. Mm -hmm. So how do you see um, some trying to, you know, some have name recognition, but a lot of them are going to have to do a lot of work when it comes to fundraising and getting name recognition out there. Remember, to get on the spring ballot, usually you start circulating nomination papers December 1st. Well, they lost a month of just getting, like, several weeks of getting nomination papers out. So I'm not sure the deadline exactly is for the mayoral race, but it's a shorter window. And this is also a plus and minus for Cavalier Johnson. So being acting mayor gives him the chance to, like, show he can do the job. The window to do the job is very narrow. He almost would have preferred uh, Barrett to leave closer to spring, so it could have been like a, an April primary and a May special election, or even the fall, because then you have like all this time to be the mayor to show you have a plan. He put out a plan already about uh, dangerous driving, for example. He's trying to take advantage of this opportunity to show he can do the job. Will it be enough of an impression for voters, though, to trust him? Remember, Marvin Pratt was uh, acting mayor, but for a very short window, when he lost to Tom Barrett in 2004 for this office. And Milwaukee does not like to fire their mayors. Once you become mayor, you stick around for a long, long, long time. time. So whoever wins this, this election is going to be there for a while. And the question is, who's the contender besides Kevlar Johnson? Now, I mean, like Marina Dimitrovich, you know, she is a progressive, only high-profile woman in the race, or one of the only high-profile women in the race. Does she have that lane we talk about, like the east side progressives we talk about in Milwaukee politics? Uh, Cavalier Johnson is obviously a black, the first elected black mayor in Milwaukee. Uh, Marvin Pratt was also a black mayor, but he's acting mayor. But you have Ernell Lucas, who's also a black candidate. Um, wh- where does the black community go? 
with those folks. Where's the business community go, right? I mean, there are Republicans in Milwaukee, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, there are a number of them. They have places they want to go. Bob Donovan's running, but he's run for mayor before and didn't do very well. So do Republicans rally around him, think this may be his shot? Or they go, well, who's the safest, quote-unquote, de- or most acceptable Democrat to us? It's a lot of things like that to watch in that race and how it um, plays out. Plus, who can raise the money and build the infrastructure to have a, a good campaign rolling by, by February. And another important role that will be for them is uh, attracting a convention, right? Mm-hmm. We already know that the city of Milwaukee filed to have the Republican National Convention. I know Barrett has said multiple times he'd love to have both conventions yeah. in the city of Milwaukee. So that will be another important role if they can bring that convention back after in 2022 when it was a mainly virtual convention and there's a lot of disappointment in the city. Hey, look, to get a convention, Somebody has to raise the money. And so Republicans are kind of talking about it. They're kind of getting organized. But until I see the money, um, it's hard to believe they will come to Milwaukee. Republicans would love to tweak Democrats by saying, look, you guys screwed Milwaukee by coming here virtually in 2020. We actually care about Wisconsin. We're committed to Wisconsin and Milwaukee because we're better than you guys kind of thing. I just don't know if there's the appetite to raise the money because it costs, they had to raise $40 million plus for Democrats, right? Does the donor community have the appetite to give the, write those checks again? And then where's Milwaukee fit versus the other cities in, in contention for the convention? Because it's not just, we're a swing state in 2016, 2020, 2004, 2008 and 12, not so much. But where are we at the pecking order? Georgia may be more important than we are right now. Arizona more important than we are because they were closer elections in um, 2000, so, or 2020. So that's something I'm kind of watching, too, is where the parties feel like their best symbolic move is for a convention versus Milwaukee. All right, we'll move on to our next topic, which is the education system. Uh, we had some changes in the state system itself. In April, Wisconsin elected Jill Underly to serve as the next state, state state superintendent of schools. And with the education system, there was many debates around critical race theory, Republican proposals that would ban transgender athletes from competing in school sports. And these, like I said, are going to be key issues Mm -hmm. heading into the next election cycle. We also have that is kind of looming right now as the joint finance chairs and DPI continue to debate where to put 77 million federal relief funds for school districts. Now, background in that is that Republicans sent the federal government their plan that they knew was likely going to face criticism, which would have given schools who stayed open during the pandemic more money over others. Now, with all of this evolving education news that we've seen throughout, I think the key question I want to ask you, JR, is number one is what we saw is parents want what the Republican message, I should say, is parents want more say of what's being taught in their schools, what's going on in their schools, and they want to see some transparency with that. So do you see this being a key issue uh, for Republicans, especially we've already seen uh, former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish make this a key centerpiece of mm-hmm. while she's out on the campaign trail? So a couple of things. One, um, parents saw what was happening in their classrooms during the virtual instruction of the pandemic, right? Before this thing get off to school, how was your day at school? Fine. What did you learn? Nothing. You know, that was the end of the conversation. They were in the classroom, essentially, watching over their children's shoulders what was going on, how it was being taught. Now, it's not a, a one-to-one scenario because you're, you're virtual. It's not like being in the classroom, necessarily. That said, it opened this window for parents who are sitting more involved. The thing is, though, I don't know if it's a defining issue 
or if it's a motivation issue for a part of a certain segment of the voting population. Remember, in Virginia this past fall with the special or the election there for their governor, critical race theory was on the ballot, um, and it was used during that debate for the governor's race about what's going on. Terry McAuliffe also made a horrible, horrible gaffe in saying that parents pretty much shouldn't tell, have a say in what's going on in their kids' classrooms. That was not a great line. He hoped Tony Evers is better versed than that on his talking points when he goes into debate next fall. But we also had critical race theory on the ballot in these recall elections in suburban Milwaukee. They did not succeed. And I asked people, well, why not? What was the difference? And the difference was there's more than critical race theory in the ballot in Virginia. There was Joe Biden. There was the unease about crime. I mean, just go down the, the inflation, all the talking points of like what's happening in this country right now. That was on the ballot in Virginia. So my impression is that, yes, it's a motivating factor for some parents, but it's not the motivating, it's not the defining issue of the entire race. It's how do you use it effectively and message it? Because it's just about critical race theory. I think people maybe aren't well, that tuned to that. And a lot of people don't really, can't even define it what when it talking is. in discussions. Yeah, but can you package it with other things about education to say, you need to care about what's happening in your kid's school. They don't care about you knowing, we do. Like that's the challenge for public is how do you harness that energy appropriately and make an effective message. And speaking of education, Governor Evers ran on. I'm the education mm-hmm. governor. He served many, many years as a state superintendent, and he's had a lot of, once again, this federal money at his disposal to use and make investments in schools because he didn't get what he wanted in the state budget. We can probably dive into the state budget yeah. a little bit more because we'll get to that to the lead. A and remember, later. too, we had report cards that came out this fall. They were not great. Um, DPI said that you know more schools were meeting the standards than before, but more schools were also had lower scores. It's kind of a, well, how's that work? Um, and Governor Evers, for being in education as long as he has, you look at the trends, they're not great. And so the question for Republicans, what do you do differently? You've been either DPI superintendent or governor for, what, 16 years? Or, sorry, 14 years by next fall. What are you going to do that's different? What's your vision for education besides more money? All right. Uh, topic number seven, we have crime and law enforcement. Wisconsin a few times the on the show, we have talked about how this will be a big centerpiece for next uh, session going into the new year. We've uh, talked to Republican leaders. They want to uh, pass several proposals that deal with this. But this really came to light uh, in this past year. It's a lot to unpack, but mm-hmm. there was the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Most recently, the Waukesha Christmas Parade tragedy that really started to ignite these calls for criminal justice reform. Uh, let's take a little bit back in time because I want to first start about the Speaker's Task Force on Racial Disparities. Now, that was uh, created um after a Kenosha police officer shot a a black man, Jacob Blake, several times. That became very controversial, so Assembly Speaker Robin Voss took action, uh, gave, uh, named two co-chairs, Sheila Stubbs and Representative uh, Steinecke, excuse Mm -hmm. me, almost blanked on that. And their goal was basically to release some recommendations uh, in hopes to reform law enforcement policies. Now that commitment was met and they did release 18 recommendations, but a lot of advocates said they didn't go far enough. We did see some legislation passed. There was some movement. Governor Evers took some signatures on those bills and signed them into law, but he also called for more actions. So before we kind of get into where we see this playing out the new year, let's kind of hear a recap of those who really rallied uh, for police reform. Wisconsin is the worst state to raise a black family. These facts are shameful, unacceptable, and our community deserves better. This list of legislation is a key step forward. It is the floor. It is basic. It is not progressive. It is basic reforms. These are good bills. 
for our community, together with bipartisan support, we are going to bring the key legislation to Governor Evers' desk. We didn't just put st our, our stamp of approval on legislation that was already out there. We asked for changes to that legislation. We came out with brand new legislation. Not everybody got everything that they wanted. Some people feel like the bill could, bills could go further. Some people feel like the bills go t too far. It was about trying to set a tone for people to come together to find consensus around really tough issues. I'm proud to announce a $45 million investment of our American Rescue Plan funds in, vi in violence prevention efforts and crime victim, victim services. Of this $45 million investment, $25 million will go directly to violence prevention. So some of the proposals that we saw signed into law would ban chokeholds except in life-threatening situations or self-defense, requiring law enforcement to post their use of force policies online, provide grants to city, cities to fund more community-oriented police housing. Question for you, JR, we've seen those pass. Do we see more movement on police reform, or do you think Republicans are instead going to start focusing on bail reform, mm -hmm. more of the things that they want to get done in lieu of the Waukesha Christmas parades tragedy where we saw Daryl Brooks um, is now uh, facing criminal charges mm -hmm. for driving through the parade. The issue seems to have turned. Um, there is a movement among conservatives to try and do criminal justice reform uh, on various fronts. That talk has died down a lot in Wisconsin recently, right? I have not seen another bill about police reform introduced since Daryl Brooks and what happened in Waukesha, right? The focus is all about bond. And you're going to see a message in the spring from Republican lawmakers of law and order, of backing the badge, of trying to keep violent people behind bars. And why hasn't Governor Evers removed John Chisholm, whose office recommended the bail of $1,000 for Daryl Brooks before he was released 11 days, I think it was, before the Waukesha uh, parade? Does that conversation dominate? Republicans probably. What's the answer going to be from Democrats? What's their response going to be? Are they going to agree that there should be some changes to bail um, in terms of if you're a violent person or committed a violent crime. Uh, Robin Voss, even though, has said he wants to have bail reform, but doesn't want to be a de facto prison sentence, that you would lose your livelihood, your um, wife, possibly your family, if you were charged with a crime later found to be innocent, because you're still innocent until proven guilty. So where is that line? Um, don't forget Governor Evers' last session vetoed a bill that if you were on uh, like parole or probation, something like that, if you committed any kind of like infraction of these various rules, you could go back to the jail. Does that discussion come back? Is that a different debate going forward? Because what we saw here, that's all the stuff to be watched, but you definitely can see a crime element to the 2022 campaign, Republicans pushing it, the Democrats are, are soft on crime and don't back police. And that's what I was going to mention too, it's kind of this fine line, how do, or I guess what does bail reform look like? Mm -hmm. Because Attorney General Josh Call, even Governor Evers has said, yeah, I'm open to the idea, yeah, that the constitutional amendment to give judges more discretion when setting bail when it comes to danger, a dangerous defendant, they like that idea. But the same thing is, is that the perfect fit for Wisconsin? Who knows? The, you know, the bill that Evers vetoed last session about those violations, there is a, a cost estimate from corrections of like hundreds of millions of dollars to build more prisons essentially to house people who committed these violations while out. Likewise, being Dana Milwaukee County are the two most populous counties in Wisconsin, they're the ones that focus on Republicans about their bail policies. Their jails are full. They don't have room to house more people now. So would that the change policies on other folks? Like how do you address that? Um, it's not like you just change the bail policies and that's it. There are implications of what ha ripple effect 
from those decisions I have to deal with, and the state fund it. My guess is Republicans don't want to give Milwaukee County, Dane County, more money yeah. <laughs> to create more jail, right. jail space. So what's the answer going to be um, for that part of the equation? And that's usually what stalls a lot of just general blanket criminal justice reform stuff is that people can't find the best idea approach. There's always going to be someone mm -hmm. say, hey, wait, you didn't think about this. Um, it wouldn't be our countdown <laughs> if we did not cover a big topic, which is the 2022 elections. So the campaign is going to begin. We have a lot of candidates' names out there. I kind of just formed kind of some of the big questions here. Will U.S. Senator Ron Johnson run again? We have Rebecca Clayfish that remains the dominant Republican frontrunner for the governor's race. Uh, will there be a competitive race? It seems like there might be for the first time in a long time for the Secretary of State's office. And who will win the primary election for lieutenant governor? So, JR, we were talking a little bit before the show started. Um, Ron Johnson keeps saying, I'll make a decision in a few weeks, I'll make a decision in a few weeks. The question is there, I guess, how would it impact the Republican Party if he doesn't run? Well, if he doesn't run, it impacts the governor's race, one thing. So Ron Johnson is the key cog in all this right now. If Ron Johnson runs, then Kevin Nicholson runs for governor, right? That's, that's obvious. Kevin Nicholson, who ran for U.S. Senate in 2018, he has said he's running for something next year, just not sure which office yet. If Ron Johnson doesn't run and Kedrickson runs for U.S. Senate, what's Mike Gallagher do? Congressman from Green Bay, he's had his eye on that seat as well. Um, there's a perception that Ron Johnson does not care for Kevin Nicholson for a number of reasons. So where would Ron Johnson end up in a primary like that? Oh, by the way, Donald Trump is very important. Republican primaries. Mike Gallagher called on Donald Trump during the January 6th uh, violent protest of the Capitol to stand up, essentially, pull back your supporters. I don't think Trump cared for that and the attention that Gallagher got. So if you're a Wisconsin Republican, could you keep Trump out of a primary like that? And this is all out of theoreticals mm -hmm. right now because you know what Ron Johnson's right. going to do. But I'm trying to underscore how messy it could be if there's no Ron Johnson running for U.S. Senate um, next year. Now, let's say Johnson runs. I have a primary for governor between Clayfish and Nicholson. That dynamic would be Kevin Nicholson avoid a repeat of the 2018 Senate primary where he ran against Leah Vukmir, who was kind of like a party favorite. People knew her, were familiar with her. Nicholson was the outsider, a guy who had been a college Democrat, actually the president of college Democrats, the entire national organization, 20-some um, years ago. Can he win people over? Has he done enough to assure the base, I'm one of you? Whereas the Clayfish, she was part of the Walker administration. They backed her, the base did, during a recall election in 2012, right? They know her. She's worked that base for years, gone to convention. There's a very important thing about the state Republican Party race for the nomination. The state party has an endorsement process at the convention every even-numbered year. If you get that endorsement, the party basically is your de facto backer. I mean, like, you get access to their information. They promote you to their voters, those kinds of things. That would be big for Becca Clayfish. Could Kevin Nicholson, again, theoretically, prevent her from getting the party's not, uh, endorsement at the convention? Maybe. But he would need that to avoid a repeat of 2018, where he was the outside running against Leah Vukmir. So you have all that going on, just those two races. Lieutenant governor, I mean, like, Nobody wanted to be lieutenant governor that long ago. Right, <laughs> It wasn't right. a very popular office or very high profile, but Rebecca Clayfish and Mandela Barnes have changed that. Walker gave Clayfish stuff to do. Evers has given Barnes stuff to do. They both have used as launching pads to other offices. So for these others, it's what's the best profile to be on the ticket? Let's say Clayfish is the nominee for Republicans. She's from southeastern Wisconsin. She's a woman. What balances her out, right? Um, does it help this one from northern Wisconsin, like a Pat Teston? Right? He's a state lawmaker from Stevens Point. Does that help her geographically to have him there? Um, ben Vocal, who's a former Johnson aide, 
you know, would that help? He's also from southeastern Wisconsin, though. Um, and the question really that Republican field is who can raise the money and get a campaign going? Teston's raised the money, right? He ran a competitive Senate, Senate race in 2020 and 2016, pulled one of the big upsets in 2016, beating Julie Lassa for that Senate seat around Stevens Point. So does he have the edge then? He's definitely in the top tier. Does he have the edge for that primary? Uh, Vocal could raise money because he got these connections through Johnson, but I don't think Ron Johnson's the kind of guy who'll go out and endorse somebody and say, well, you were my aide. I'm going to tap you right. the shoulder and help you out. Right. So he's going to fight for it. Who can break through the other people who are contending? Who can also break through and be in that conversation with those two? On the Democratic side, you have all three candidates are from southeast Wisconsin right now. We might get more also from southeastern Wisconsin. So what's the profile that works? David Bowen's from Milwaukee. Uh, Lena Taylor's from Milwaukee. Sarah Rodriguez is from the suburbs. Democrats are great with suburban women, right, under Donald Trump. That's maybe with the crime thing, Waukesha Christmas right. Parade, maybe that's slipping away. Does Rodriguez bring the ticket in that regard? You know, we'll see. But they're, I'm watching, does Evers uh, endorse in that primary? That could get messy for him if he did because you're alienating somebody. He usually somebody. has it in the past, too, when it comes to any, you know, Democratic races or whoever else is on the, on the ballot. He remains pretty quiet until the final weeks yep. and usually doesn't send out a statement that I've endorsed so-and-so. Unlikely, but if it got messy... And it was distracting might, from right. his own campaign. What do you do then? Yeah. And much like Mandela Barnes, I mean, people think, well, Mandela and the governor, they're like, you know, buddies. But he's not going to endorse in the Senate primary either. So, again, unless it gets messy, maybe he stays out of that. And speaking of the governor's race, uh, let's hear from Governor Evers and Rebecca Clayfish when they both kind of formally announced uh, that they're in this race. Wisconsin, I'm in. This is a moment when we can choose to fix the big problems in Wisconsin and bounce back stronger than ever before. That means doing what's best for our kids, creating good paying jobs, fixing our infrastructure, supporting small businesses, and making sure everyone has access to quality, affordable health care. We have 521 days to make it happen, folks, and I'm going to need your help to do it. But I know because of all of you watching tonight, we're going to win. So let's get to work, folks. I today announce I am running for governor of the great state of Wisconsin. We need to have safe streets, and we need to have schools with some type of educational standards, and we need good-paying jobs. I will fight for you and everyone across this great state of Wisconsin, and we will take back the governor's office on November 8th of 2022, and we will do it all together for a stronger Wisconsin. And the last thing I want to hit on before we go on to our next uh, topic is a competitive secretary of state, right? Mm -hmm. We have Republican Amy Loudenbeck, who has kind of committed that she would like to give the office more control over the state's elections commission. And then you have longtimer Democrat Doug LaFollette, who's been there. I don't know. You you got the you got the facts, but a, a pretty long time, and he's got that charisma that a lot of people like, and a lot of people haven't really seen another box next to his name when they're voting. Uh, Doug LaFollette won that office in '74. Took a four-year <laughs> leave when he ran for lieutenant governor in '78. Mm-hmm. Won it again in '82 in a multiple candidate pri- a primer, Democratic primary, and then won the general election. Look, it's a question of can a well-financed and organized Republican campaign beat in a good environment, possibly beat the best name in Wisconsin politics. Like LaFollette is a golden name in Wisconsin politics. And you think about it, on the ballot next fall, we're going to have, you know, you go from the U.S. Senate, governor. Um, Lieutenant governor's a ticket. Uh, 
you know, attorney general. If I tell you the secretary of state, do you know who these candidates are? Right. Do they mm -hmm. break through? I don't know. Now, for uh, Amy Lautenbeck, there's a challenge here. There's a big kind of buildup in the base, Republican base, about the election was stolen in 2020. Mm -hmm. Where are these guys at? The other candidates uh, who aren't very well known are pretty adamant about they want to run elections, period, in Wisconsin. And they believe in the, you know, the big steel kind of thing going on. So how does that play in the primary? Does Loudbeck have to toe a line between not alienating moderate voters, but also like being conservative enough on that issue that the base is happy with her? Again, convention could be a big thing for her. She has the endorsement of the state party. But something to watch. I just, people really haven't paid attention to that office right. in forever. LaFollette's been there forever. Now, one caveat, Doug LaFollette told me um, when Loudbeck first filed that he didn't like working from home during the pandemic. He's not really a big fan of that. Um, he'll wait and see in March how it's looking <laughs> and make a decision about running again. But he's pretty sure he's going to run uh, in his 80s. So he's been there for a long time. Does that name have the magic still in 2022 if the environment's not good for Democrats? And we'll see. Uh, and number five, we have Congressman Ron Kine announcing that he is retiring. Now, the congressman from La Crosse uh, will not run for re-election and will retire after 13 terms in office. Now, the big question here is how this decision will impact the future of Wisconsin's third congressional district. Before we dive into that, Jr., let's hear from Ron Kine, who basically said he is tired mm -hmm. when making his announcement. I'm here to announce that this will be my last term in office. I will not seek re-election as representative of this congressional district come next year. Uh, the truth is, uh, I've run out of gas. Uh, at the end of this term, it'll be 26 years of running back and forth to Washington, D.C., and that takes its toll. But the other sad truth is, besides me running out of gas, is I'm part of a dying breed in public service today in Washington and, and certainly in Madison. Someone who tried to be reasonable, uh, pragmatic, thoughtful. I think we need more of that these days in both Washington and Madison and all levels of government. And we're seeing fewer and fewer of those type of people willing to serve who don't believe that politics should just be a constant co combat sport where the goal is just to destroy uh, people on the other side. Uh, and unfortunately, we're seeing too many of those uh, in public service uh, today. Now, Kind, who has spent nearly 25 years in the House, faced a closer-than-expected election last fall. And what's important about the future of this seat is that we still don't know what the maps mm -hmm. will look like next year. So a couple of things. One, Kind's retirement was kind of the first of the big ones for Democrats. We have seen a slew of them since this summer. That has reinforced the message of Republicans feel confident about winning the House um, next fall between the environment and redistricting process and Republican-held states, they can draw stronger maps for them. Democrats trying their best in their states to do the same thing. But it looks good for Republicans to take control of the House. So long-time Democrats are going, I don't want to be the minority again. I'm getting out of here. Um, the thing is with the map, with the least change approach the Supreme Court has called for and the map submitted to it as it decides what the lines look like, if it says least change without significant revisions, it's a Republican trending seat. Derek Van Orden's raised $1.8 million for the end of September. That's a lot of money for a challenger candidate. Now we have several Democrats who are running, Brad Paff, um, state senator, uh, sorry, blanking on a couple of those, uh, Becca Cook, Rebecca Cook yeah. from Eau Claire. We have a former CIA uh, agent running as well, McGrath. So they've got interesting backgrounds. I'm not sure can they raise the money and have the profile to kind of catch up in a Republican trending seat. Now, 
if things turn around, if it's a better environment for Democrats, different story. If that district moves a little bit in the southeastern part, because of more of the Dane County sub like, areas uh, west of Dane County, that could help them, you know, help Democrats. But if it stays as it is, good environment, good money for Van Orden, um, good numbers, it's not a great seat right now for Democrats to defend uh, in Wisconsin. Yeah, it will definitely be a race that we'll be watching and see if the House can hang on to their majority in 2022, like you mentioned. Topic number four, something we love about and love <laughs> to dive into. It's JR's favorite topic is redistricting. So heading into next year, Governor Evers and Republicans will square off in court to determine the fate of Wisconsin's new legislative and congressional maps. Now, Republicans, we've said this many times, want to implement a lease changes approach to redrawing the maps. And Democrats have long said that the current maps are gerrymandered and gives Republicans too much of an advantage in elections. Now, we've talked about this many times on the show before, JR, of you know looking ahead, the courts are going to have a few options to look for. So let's mm-hmm. first recap that, and then we'll kind of dive in to let our audience, you know, we'll tell them about why this is important, why people should care about this. So the court asked for briefs uh, for maps first on December 15th. The party submitted their, their maps. That process underscored that with a lease change approach, Republicans can have an advantage. I mean, if you do lease change approach, you can't draw a 50-50 map in Wisconsin in the assembly. It's just the way that it is. Now, it's not just the maps Republicans are in control or are in control because of those. It's a combination of the maps, the trends politically in Wisconsin, money, message, quality of candidates. I mean, there are seats that um, used to go Democratic top of the ticket. Republicans kept wanting at the bottom because they had a better message, better candidate. Still, these new maps, the other ones are proposed, are really locking in this Republican majority in the Assembly and the Senate coming the next decade. The question is, how big is it going to be? For Congress, you know, uh, same thing, least change approach. You have to move some things because Dane County is growing uh, really, really well. Uh, St. Croix County a bit as well, the Fox Valley, but you have to move some people to accommodate for that. Where those voters go from the Dane County area, they go into the second, uh, or sorry, the first you know, southeast part of the state, they go over west, and the third go up to like the fifth. Where is that going to go? The things that I'm watching, but you know, really, uh, this is all about um, setting the. Well, I should tell you back. It's not necessarily the next decade. At least the next two years, it sets the foundation for maps. And why I say that is, even after court draws the maps, you can go back and draw a new map and pass it to the legislature and get the governor to sign it. So that's why it's. Evers' election is so important next fall in some ways for Democrats. This map, they hope, will be better than what Republicans drew and passed, but was vetoed. But if, it's, if it is better for them and they lose a governor's office and maintain both houses, they can come back in January of 2023, Republicans can, pass the map they wanted to this time, tweak a little bit more after the last, right. this next election to accommodate like any changes, and you can't stop that map unless there's a federal lawsuit that challenges it. So. so let's uh, now hear a little bit of the video of some of the debates that we're likely to hear in court when it comes to the governor's proposals and Republicans' proposals. Somehow Republicans prepared uh, gerrymandered maps that some have described even more gerrymandered than the ones that are existence at this point in time. If I had grave homework, it'd be enough. If the Republican maps come to my desk, they are going as they're currently drafted. I'll veto them. At least the Republican map goal was not to decimate the voices of the black and brown communities in Wisconsin. Governor Tony Evers, Mr. Speaker, in the or the people's maps 
are also not fair to everyone in our state. You can't take our minority majority districts. They are protected. We meet all the elements to have them and replace them with opportunity districts. These maps are illegal and a perversion of justice that cannot stand, Mr. Speaker. We did not consider race when drafting the legislative maps, instead relying on the classic redistricting principles adjusting for population changes. We all know the maps were considered constitutional 10 years ago, and that's why the underlying maps are as well. We listen to the public. We involve the legislature. We maintain the core principles that it sounds like we agree with Tony Evers on. And at the end of the day, these maps are constitutional. They will be good for the state of Wisconsin, and it's why I encourage all members in both parties to vote green. So we know for sure redistricting will be talked about a lot next mm -hmm. year. But sadly, one thing that will still be talked about and in the news leads us into topic number three, which is the we all thought this summer to go. We <laughs> thought everything was going to be fine. That is not the case right now. Um, I first want to recap kind of earlier this year. In April, it was when the S Supreme Court struck down Governor Evers' emergency order, which was the statewide mask mandate. Now, the court ruled that Evers exceeded his authority because he was issuing them multiple times in a row. Now, the ruling bars the governor from issuing mask orders and other mitigation efforts to prevent the spread of COVID-19. So when a lot of people hear news about COVID right now, they're like, oh, no, another shutdown. Well, technically, the governor does not have any of those powers anymore. So the mask really dominated also school board meetings. We've talked about that. And all during this throughout the year, we've seen Republicans propose a host of anti-vaccine bills aimed at banning vaccine mandates for basically everywhere you go, businesses, employers, sporting events, and concert venues. Let's uh, take a listen to, I guess, the year throughout COVID, <laughs> the variants, et cetera, um, from state health officials, and uh, kind of recapping of how it went this year. Anybody in this body should be concerned of all Wisconsinites. I have the right to tell you that some people are more susceptible and your leadership is not about you, it's about everyone. The CDC and the FDA go right back to wash your hands. That is the most important thing. And I would not advocate to not wear a mask. If you're out, wear one. But it should not be mandated. Wisconsin's vaccine rollout has been a national embarrassment. If you ask the average citizen, they have no idea what our plan is. They have no idea when they can get a vaccine. And they have no idea besides calling their local hospital frantically. As of yesterday, Wisconsin was fourth in the nation for the percentage of our vaccine supply used. It has been made even more crucial as we face new variants of the virus and, and a state that is not fully vaccinated. We are in a new phase of the epidemic that is clearly worse than we were before and its transmission among young people who are driving the change in the curve. The Delta variant is here in Wisconsin and spreading throughout our state. If you are unvaccinated and exposed, it's not a matter of if you'll get it, it's when. So we know last year, this year, <laughs> 
the pandemic was a kind of a key issue um, on the campaign trail for people. But we don't really know whether if it will still be a centerpiece for some candidates in 2022. Uh, we were kind of just talking a little bit about we saw the shortage of poll workers. Mm -hmm. um, there's probably going to be maybe the Wisconsin Elections Commission might have to make some changes uh, because of the criticism they're getting right now for Republicans on what uh, I guess recommendations they gave when it came to nursing homes and ballot drop boxes, et cetera. So I guess this is a, a question that we don't know, JR. I mean, yeah. do you think the pandemic is going to be a key talker uh, for the 2022 elections? Look, Joe Biden's numbers started to tank uh, around the pull out from Afghanistan and the rise of the surge in the fall. He ran on this platform of being competent, about getting control of the virus. He's going to knock down the virus, shut down the virus, not the economy, right? Well, here we are having a wave that was similar to wave a year ago, even though we have a vaccine available. The questions are, you know, this disease has proven to be somewhat seasonal, right? So you're seeing like these fluctuations in numbers. We had a drop in cases in June down to like there were several dozen new a day versus the hundreds we're seeing now. Where is this at next summer? Do people feel better about it? Because is it a, if it's a seasonal thing, this wave as well, do we see it taper off in the summer? Everybody feels good again. And then those doubts creep back up in the fall because it gets worse again. Like, how is that going to play right. out? Because think the big peaks started going in November last uh, 2021 and 2020. That's the right time election next fall. So yeah. how do people re react to that? Uh, that's one thing. And for Evers, he got pretty good marks about how he's handled the COVID. Last Marquette poll talked about how people don't really trust him, what he says about COVID-19. They don't trust Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson has made a platform of being, in his mind, at just asking questions uh, to others, a conspiracy theorist about things with you know COVID-19, the various things he's thrown out there. How do people view him? and what he's, his stance about COVID, if he runs again. If he runs again, right. So there, it's going to be an issue next fall. I just don't know what's going to dominate next fall because it's so far away, but I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon. Right, and we just don't know how the, how the virus and this new uh, variant, the Omicron, is how long it's going to last, and who knows? We all <laughs> want it to be over, but still have to take precautions. Uh, now, topic number two. We have to talk about <laughs> the 2022 election. Even though we are heading into 2022, there is still a hot button issue with the 2022 election and the fallout. Mm -hmm. um, of course, to recap the year, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss hired former Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman to conduct an investigation of the 2022 election. Since it has started, there has been major backlash. There's been criticism over Gableman's staff and his previous comments that he has said, claiming the election was stolen. Some staffers are conspiracy theorists. It remains unknown when this probe will end. And the scope of investigation, to just remind people of what we know as of right now, JR, is that he's looking into alleged voter fraud at nursing homes, the CTCL election grants that Republicans have taken aim at that were distributed to Wisconsin's five largest cities, but also kind of sprinkled across the state. We've also seen attacks against the Wisconsin Elections Commission for how they administered the election and the guidance that they gave to local clerks. And there's been calls for their resignations, and some want to see them criminally charged for their actions. So to end on that, we've also seen numerous reviews. It's important mm -hmm. to note that we've had the nonpartisan legislative audit bureau that has shown that there's, you know, there's no widespread voter fraud. There's no evidence of it. We've even seen conservative group, the law firm, Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, do their own review saying Joe Biden won. But 
lot of Republicans don't want to move on from this. Let's kind of hear a recap of the arguments on the 2022 election and what this means for the 2022 election. What happened in Green Bay? It should scare you. They were able to push out the city clerk, not allow her to do her job to administer our elections, and allow outside paid political staff to administer the elections in Green Bay is a scary proposition. One thing remains clear in Wisconsin. We held a fair, free, and secure election, and Joe Biden is our president. People need to understand that this election is over. The Legislative Audit Bureau, as always, does an excellent job. They did a good job here. I have confidence in Justice Gableman and that in the end we are going to have a report which showcases all of the problems that occurred in 2020. Of all the items in the Legislative Audit Bureau's report, this one was the most egregious example of sloppy work, inaccuracy, and unprofessionalism on the part of the Audit Bureau. So isn't this just a extension of partisan activities trying to gin up a political base for the next election more than a legitimate investigation of the last election? My work and my employees will be judged by one thing, and that is the finished work product. And right now, what is preventing the finished work product is the fearful running and hiding There's a simple explanation for almost every single thing that people accuse election officials of doing. There's an explanation for almost all of it. And so I think the Gableman um, investigation should come to a close sooner rather than later. So, JR, one thing I'm watching for is, are we going to see more Republicans like Senator Bernier speak out about this probe, calling for it to end? Who knows? Also, when will it end? Yes. We love that question because we don't know. Uh, remember, there's a hearing January 21st in uh, one of these various proceedings with this thing, the one about trying to compel the mayors to of Green Bay and um, Madison to testify or be jailed if they refuse. That's just a briefing Hearing, a briefing scheduling hearing. So they're going to lay out when the briefs are due. That means we're not seeing this thing end anytime soon. Um, and the question becomes to me, and I've asked this to people, if it comes out in March, April, May, June, pick your month, does the result impact the election next fall? We've talked to Republican base. There are some folks in the base who are convinced the election was stolen, that lawmakers are doing enough to put Donald Trump back in office, even though that can't happen, right? We know he can't reverse the decertified Wisconsin electoral votes. But if they're disappointed, isn't it better to disappoint them earlier than later? Um, you can then, if you're Republican, make the argument of, hey, we tried all these bills, Evers vetoed them, we did our best, he's the problem, you should come out and vote in the fall. Gordon Hens had an interesting theory when I interviewed him for a year in an interview that Republicans want to keep this going indefinitely because they can always say there's an investigation about the election without disappointing the voters that they're mm-hmm. catering to right now. For Democrats, you know, Evers says, look, I'm, I'm the bulwark against all these election changes, I'm the one stopping the craziness. Is that an effective message to get people to come out and vote next fall? The Dem base is not very excited right now. Got, you know, Joe Biden's had his issues. He hasn't delivered on a number of things he promised uh, liberals. So what's going to motivate them next fall? Is this going to be enough? Is it something like this? Bring them out um, next fall because even he's an engaged Democratic base. He can't, 
he can't have a depressed base next fall in a good Republican year and win re-election. Exactly. All right, we'll move on to biggest drum roll. <laughs> Number one, we have the Bienum budget passing. Now, a lot of people forgot this even happened this year. <laughs> Just kidding. I mean, we remember, right? But it was on July 8th, Governor Evers signed the 2021-2023 state budget, which includes more than a $2 billion tax cut, which was proposed by Republicans. Now, Evers issued more than 50 vetoes to the budget, but most of them were minor. Mm -hmm. Now, the governor said vetoing the entire budget was not an option for him because it could have compromised billions of dollars in federal aid. I kind of want to go back to the, the the second bullet, or the, I guess the first bullet point there, JR, is about him signing the $2 billion tax cut. Governor Evers likes to say, I signed it, look what I did mm -hmm. for you. But Republicans have long argued that, hey, that was our idea, you're taking credit for it. So on the, you know, on the campaign, it's going to be Tony's messaging, mm -hmm. look what I did, but Republicans saying, well, if you would have totaled his budget, it actually uh, would have increased taxes by $1.6 correct? The one he proposed? If you're explaining politics... Roughly by two periods, yeah. If you're explaining politics, you're losing the message game. So if you have to say, if this would have, if this would have, it's a harder message to mm -hmm. deliver. I had some Republicans who, when the governor signed the budget, said we miscalculated things. We may have just given him a golden gift for re-election in 2022 because he can say he signed $2 billion this budget. He signed also hundreds of millions more in tax cuts and other actions he's taken while governor. He can say, I'm Tony the tax cutter. Now, it drives Republicans crazy. Mm -hmm. They feel like it's not uh, really a genuine argument from the governor. But all that matters is the message in the ad. And he can say in the ad, I signed X billion dollars in tax cuts. Um, the economy is humming along. We got low, low unemployment. We're doing great. Republicans will say, he wanted to really raise your taxes. We saved you from Tony Evers. Can that message resonate versus the more simpler one? And, oh, by the way, here are those ads about unemployment, the problems there, trying to undercut that good economy stuff, how unemployment is doing well. Um, it's going to be interesting. And I don't, again, don't know what's going to dominate the discussion. But this budget was interesting because it also queued up the relationship between uh, Governor Evers and Robin Voss. Uh, Voss has done nothing but say Tony Evers gave in. He abandoned his budget. He abandoned his maps. He's this ineffective governor. He's weak. Robin Voss was driving a message that Tony Evers can't get things done, and he's basically just being pulled on by the nose by Republicans. There is some truth to that he can't get stuff, Evers can't get anything done he wants to without Republican legislature, but he still has uh, $2.7 billion in federal money to hand out between last year and next year, or this past year and the coming year. That's effective. You know, he gives you a lot of ribbon cuttings. I don't know if it's going to offset, for example, Republicans will argue, look, Evers shut down your businesses. He's the reason why you need these ARPA, this, these ARPA funds to like make up for lost revenue because he ordered the shutdown. So they focus on that. Or Evers saying, here's your check, businesses. Here's tourism industry. Here's where we're helping you. The ad saying, we did all this stuff to help us get back on our feet, and now things are humming along. I don't know what's going to win out next fall. But that's the different message you're going to hear from the two sides, I think, next fall. And speaking of the tax messaging and, of course, this budget overall, there was a lot of debate over it. What, mm -hmm. When is there not a debate during budget <laughs> discussions and the joint finance hearings uh, that lasted several months? Let's take a listen to the recap of the budget process and how both sides kind of weighed in on it. My budget was a reasonable approach. What the Republicans have uh, put forward is not only inadequate, but even if they meet those federal guidelines, it's an inadequate response. The Fiscal Bureau... Our, our, our nonpartisan arbiter here 
has outlined for us on the June 8th memo the, the, the most important factors in the position we're in, Joe Biden and Tony Evers and the Republican legislatures on this committee, you guys fought those efforts. You wrote letters saying the federal government shouldn't spend additional money. You, you took Tony Evers to court, sued him multiple times over different containment measures. You don't get any credit for this. You know, people are all talking about President Biden and President Trump and Tony Evers and how everybody did this great budget surplus that we did. You know who did this budget surplus? Wisconsin families. That's who owns and that's who did this budget surplus. And this proposal, this motion, is going to give some of that money back. So this morning, I exercised my broad constitutional authority to improve the budget that was sent to me, and I am signing Assembly Bill 68 making it Wisconsin Act 58. Personally, I find it laughable and hypocritical that just six months ago, when Governor Evers introduced his budget and he proposed an over $1 billion tax increase, well, the governor today takes credit for the historic tax cut that the Republican legislature delivered to his desk. At the end of the day, we're pleased the governor was forced to sign a reasonable, responsible, and realistic budget. And Jerry, I want to end our show today about what was missed this year. We know COVID, elections, budget, a lot of these headlines were just being really dominated the year. But what do you think was really under the radar? Uh, well, it was kind of a late developing story. So we have a change of leadership in the Assembly Democratic Caucus. Um, Gordon Hintz stepped down or stepping down as of January 10th, I believe. That kind of came out of nowhere, though. Hintz wasn't that excited about seeking re-election in 2020. Um, he's been here since the mid-2000s. Um, you know, he's, he's a long-timer at this point in that caucus. And there was a thought that maybe he would seek re-election. He did. He told me his commitment was to get the caucus through the budget and redistricting. And those are both pretty much done, other than the court action, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's time to walk away. So he walks away in mid-January. And now Diane Hesselbein, who's running for state senate, she's leaving in mid-February from assistant minority leader because she wants folks in her senate bid. Charles Bach retired. Um, Hasselbein has got a great great chance to win his seat, very Democratic seat, um, kind of based in the Middleton area, which is where she's from. The only question is what the lines are drawn. Is her house in the district still? Just got to watch that. But open the door for change in leadership. Uh, Greta Neubauer is 30 years old. She is from Racine. She is the youngest leader of either caucus in either house since 1943, when the guy was 29 years old and like four months shy of his birthday when he became Senate Majority Leader. When I'm serving, serving Congress, by the way. Uh, Greta is also the first openly LGBTQ leader of a caucus, I believe, in state history. Um, she's bisexual. So kind of some first, a real change in a leadership. Kaylin Hayward, uh, Haywood, um, who is 22 years old, won his seat in the assembly when he was 19. 19, yeah. Uh, very proud of being the youngest lawmakers in state history. He is the assistant now. Uh, this is a sea change for leadership. These guys have not been around for a long time. What's her direction going to be? Um, the same time, that caucus is very young. Of the 38 members of that caucus, or 38, 18 were elected from 2018 on. So Greta Neubauer is January 2018 special election. Everybody else from that day through 20, 18 members. That's yeah. a new, a very young caucus. They're a little more progressive, a little more aggressive sometimes, their, their tactics than maybe uh, their predecessors were. How do they govern, or how do they try to run the caucus, I say, because you can't really govern in the minority. But for Neubauer, she's pretty progressive. She has to win seats in places like on Alaska, where Steve Doyle is from, 
up north where Beth Myers represents and Nick Milroy, you can't run a Madison and Milwaukee-based caucus or agenda and win seats in rural Wisconsin. The Democratic, name is, Democratic Party brand is cratered in rural Wisconsin. How do you bring it back? What's your message going to be? That'll be interesting. Now, she served on finance, which helped. And she's not a, a newbie to politics. Her father right. served the assembly back in the 80s. Bring that up, yeah. Her mother is an appeals court judge, ran for the Supreme Court. She knows it's the family business. But how is she going to run that caucus? What's the message going to be? How are they going to try to get out of the hole that they're in? The maps aren't going to help. You've got to find great candidates, raise lots of money, and take your shots where you can Is you up to that task. And that will be something we'll definitely be watching next year. All right, JR, thanks so much. That will do it for this week. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm JR Ross. Thanks for joining us. Rewind, your year in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.